Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Brian Selznick. <laughs> Hello, little people. It's so nice to be back among you. <laughs> uh, thank you, David, and to everyone here at the museum. I'm so thrilled to be back talking about um, my book uh, briefly, and then I'll talk a little bit about the making of the movie. And I'm thrilled that John Logan is here to talk about the adaptation uh, and writing this for the screen. Um, we did a press conference the other day, and one of the one of the people from the press raised their hands. And like, we never see the writer and this screenwriter in the same room, and so it's really nice that uh, John and I f- uh, are mutual fans of each other. We we both feel about the other one the way the other one feels. That could be bad, couldn't it? We both love each other. Uh, <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so I'd like to talk a little bit first just about how I made the book. But before I begin, I thought I would, I would start with just a, a brief reading from the, the, the start of my book, The Invention of Hugo Cabret. If you haven't seen it, it's a 530-page book with 300 pages of pictures. And so I, I tried to tell part of the story like a, uh, like a storyboard, like a silent movie. So if we could hit our cue... It'll come. This is dramatic. How are we doing back there? Close enough.
And then the story continues from there, going back and forth, and we can cut the cue. And uh, we go back and forth from the words uh, to the pictures, of course. And so when I was making the book, I had really started when I had seen A Trip to the Moon uh, from 1902 and loved this image of the rocket going into the eye of the man in the moon and always wanted to write a story about a kid who gets to meet uh, George Melies, the, the director who made this movie. And so I started doing a little bit more research and I found out that Melies in real life had a collection of automatons that were destroyed and thrown away at the end of his life. And I imagined a boy climbing through the garbage and finding one of these broken machines. And that's really how this book began. And so I started researching automatons, discovered this uh, automaton in the basement of the Franklin Institute. It was broken, uh, but I was able to go and see how it worked, see how all of the machinery engaged. And I used this information to try to make the automaton in my book as realistic as possible. I went to Paris uh, three times. It's one of the great hardships of being a writer and illustrator of children's books is you often have to go to Paris three times to work on your projects. And so uh, we went to the train stations of Paris. The train station where Melies actually worked uh, has been torn down. Uh, it's the only train station in Paris from that time period that was torn down. So I uh, took some archival, went to, I found some archival photographs and then went to all of the other uh, train stations from the time period, in, including the Musée d'Orsay, which was once a, a train station, and used that as reference. So this is the Gare du Nord, which became a central uh, uh, sort of a bank of images for my book, and then used these uh, photographs and these details when I was doing the pictures. All the drawings in my book are done three inches by five inches. So I work very small, and then I draw them, uh, I enlarge them when they go into the book. I also watched a lot of old movies while I was making the book. I didn't really know very much about uh, French cinema other than A Trip to the Moon. Uh, my boyfriend's favorite movie is, or one of his favorite movies, is Jean Vigo's uh, La Talente. And so I watched that, and that led me to René Claire, who made this movie called Under the Roofs of Paris. This eventually led me to Francois Truffaut, and all of these filmmakers had an influence on the making of the invention of Hugo Cabret. So I would, for instance, take a scene like this from Under the Roofs of Paris and transform it into a moment like this, where Hugo is following the old man home. So in the book, we have actual film stills at certain points, but we also have my translations of those film stills into other parts of the story. Uh, this is a scene where Hugo gets caught by the bad guy, the station inspector, and put in jail. And this is a reference to Francois Truffaut's The 400 Blows. And I'm going to hand the stage back over to David, but I just wanted to say thank you. It's a thrill to be here, and I can't wait for you to see the movie. Thank you very much. Okay, well, you met Brian Selznick, and um, I'm very pleased that al also tonight we have John Logan with us, who is a great screenwriter. His credits include Gladiator, um, The Aviator, for, uh, also for Martin Scorsese, and um, he ha actually um, adapted, not only had the audacity to adapt uh, Brian Selznick, but he adapted uh, Shakespeare, and there's a great film version of Coriolanus, uh, directed by Ray Fiennes, that's coming out later this year. So this is a big year for him, so uh, please welcome John Logan. Thank you. And uh, Brian Selznick again. You can applaud again for Brian Selznick. You have the best shoes tonight. 
Uh, well, first, just uh, tell me a little bit more. You talked about what it meant to get this phone call from Scorsese, but did you, uh, and you said that you really thought of this as a, as a book, a pure book, and, but what are you thinking about this as, as a movie? Did that cross your mind? Um, no, people did ask me while I was making the book if I thought it could be a movie because yeah. it's about the history of cinema and it seems yeah. really obvious that it could be a movie. <laughs> but I, I argued with people the whole two and a half years I was making the book that it just couldn't be. And I, I, I remember saying to someone, a friend of mine, like, who would be interested? Like, why would someone want to make a movie about this story? Like, it just didn't... I know, it sounds totally stupid now because we're about to see a movie directed by Martin Scorsese based on this book. But at the time, it really was the farthest thing from anything I could have imagined. And, uh, and John, what was your... When did you first see the book and then how did you get involved in this project? Well, it's... Um, it, after, after Martin and I did The Aviator, we had a really magnificent time working on it. We were trying to find something else to do and so he called me one day and said, I have a book. I said, you know, Marty, I just, I really don't want to do an adaptation. It's like I'm really doing original work. I've only done one adaptation, and that was Stephen Sondheim, it was Sweeney Todd, and it's, you know. And, you know, I, the things about adaptations is you spend years, years with the source material. So it has to be something that speaks to you very deeply. And he said, well, just read the book. I'm like, all right. So he sent the book, and this envelope comes, and it's like six inches thick. And I'm thinking, what the heck have I agreed to read? <laughs> and I took it out, and I saw the cover, and I started reading Brian's book. And it was so beautiful and so powerful. And I think it is, I think it is a masterpiece. I truly mean that. And I called Marty that day and said, when do we start? <laughs> and so... and. <laughs> And what were your thoughts about how, about what you were going to have to do to, to this? I mean, because there's not, you know, this is a uh, as you were going to see about a two hour feature film. There's going to be ch- as much yeah. as you love the book. There's going to be changes. Yeah, that I you mean, have to make. you know, yeah. because the, the, the you know Brian and I have talked a lot, and we've, we've become really really um, close pals. I'm glad to say, the uh, the demands of cinema are very different than the demands of literature, and the organizing principles about how you tell a story are are exceedingly different. Uh, my sort of raison d'etre from the very beginning was preserve what is elementally true about that book. Uh, And to me, that was two things. It was part story and part um, tone. And the story that spoke to me in Brian's book was was the story he wrote, which to me is about a, a damaged boy making a home for himself not not falling into a happy ending but but through grit adventuresome spirit compassion finding the place where he belongs and so i i also knew that no matter what we had to cut or how we had to shape it for for a movie that had to be the story we were telling but even even more importantly i told i told brian this that when i worked on the script and it was it was a long hard job i had five copies of his novel open Hmm. to different illustrations so at every point i had in front because my computer's here and my desk's here i could look over and look and there's hugo and there's isabel and there's a station inspector and there's george and I would turn the pages. So I would always have the tone of what Brian was writing because, because that is the other truly unique thing about that amazing book is sort of the lyrical, gentle tone of it. I thought the only way to capture that is to try to sort of channel the, uh, the illustrations. And what were, what were your discussions like? What, what is the collaboration like? First of all, do you... You said it was sort of funny that you're on the same stage together, but do you like work? To, do you 
talk to Brian? Do you guys work? Uh, no, I purposely didn't. I purposely yeah. asked Marty not to speak to him. Um, yeah. So that so that for the while well, I was writing the first draft because I felt I needed to just make all the the mistakes I was going to make in adapting it, and I, I had to. I was like, I'm going to cut a character that I know is eventually going to come back, and I'm going to add characters that don't belong. So so the the ugly first process of making the first draft and the first few drafts of the script, I didn't want to talk to Brian just so I could I could have those those mistakes and then um and then he read them and we met (laughs) and then what was it uh like working with with marty scorsese the aviator is also very much a movie about movies uh, that captures his love for movies it's a different period in film history but um you know how did how did that come into play and how did you work with with marty well marty's marty's the great you know as brian will tell you he's he's the great you know we call him on the set the maestro because he's, he's like a great conductor in that he knows how to get the best out of each section. Whether he's talking to Bob Richardson about how you shoot the film, or whether he's talking to Sir Ben Kingsley about honing performance, or when he's talking to me about the, the demands of language, the oral life of the piece, or the narrative, he knows how to really work and collaborate. And because we'd done The Aviator for, for years, we had, we had sort of a shorthand, of vocabulary. So our discussions about Hugo were actually very brief. They were very, we talked about the book, we talked about what we love we talk about dickens um and that was it and and then we would we would reconvene after i'd done a draft and continue sort of to, to shape it toward toward production were you watching other like move early movies to sort of get in the spirit or to do research uh, i was because because like like brian before before hugo sort of sort of um ran into my life i didn't know that much about french cinema or even silent cinema i was a big sort of lon chaney fan so i had one sort of slanting you know and 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 a w. W. griffith fan so i knew a little bit about silent movies but i didn't know anything about this this era or and practically nothing about melies but marty is the great Cineast, and he, he's a walking encyclopedia, and his tentacles go out very far and wide to film history. So all the way along, he was feeding me. He was he was like he was like throwing snippets over the fence of like here's a here's a Hungarian movie from 1912. Here's some images from <laughs> Renee Claire that are great. And after a while, you have to be like Marty. Really, it's enough. I'm writing all day. I can't be watching these movies all night. Um, but that's that's part of the fabric of the the movie, and part of the reason he wanted to do it. I think. And um, how much does the the sort of reality of production and budgets come into play. When it's a movie like this, it's a big budget, it's a big production. You know, you have the freedom to just think up whatever you want, draw it on your little three by five card. But you have, but um, for a screenwriter, it's different because you're dealing with a lot of money and a lot of people. Right. I mean, it, it, you get the point, you get to the point where, where when you go into production that finances matter and those decisions have to be made. Uh, the, the sort of, the, wor- the early work on the script before you're greenlit, before you go into production is, is absolutely free work. It's like, you know, as much as Brian would sit down and say, you know, I, w- I want to write a scene where they go to the movies, you know, I could say, I want to write a scene where they walk over the Seine. You know, and you, j- you just write it. You don't think about, well, when they have to shoot the sh- Seine, we have to film it, we have to do CG, this shot's going to start showing Paris, which means a certain thing, and all the process of working, the actually making the movie, is, is making those decisions. And um, it's just something disciplined filmmakers instinctively do. Um, and I'd like to ask both of you what you, th- like how you think about audience. Uh, because I, th- I think what's really true about this book and the film is that uh, you, you might think at first, oh, this is for kids, or this is for children, because it's a boy uh, it's the main character, but you realize very quickly that it's, it it really is for all ages. Uh, and I wonder how you like how you think about that in your creative process. I mean, I 
definitely am aware that I'm writing for kids. Like, I, I love my audience. I think they're the best audience. And I, and I generally think that the, my readership will be around the age of the character in the story. So Hugo was around 12, so I imagined the, the, the readership would be around there. But I'm not thinking about kids when I'm writing the book. I'm thinking about what will make the story work. And I, I, I tend to work very mechanically, piecing the plot together, uh, you know, little bits at a time and putting things from the beginning that affect the end and vice versa. And, and I, I never test my stories in progress with actual children. I never, yeah, I never ask kids what they think. <laughs> <laughs> and so it makes it really terrifying when, uh, when I'm working and when a book uh, finally comes out. Uh, but the, the, the first day I was on tour with Hugo, I, I went to speak to a school and I saw the kids like clutching the book to their chest like a treasured object. And I thought, that's got to be a good sign. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I'm just trying to make a good story. Like, that's really what it comes down to. No, it's um, through osmosis, because I, I worked so closely, even though I'd never met him, with Brian. And, you know, he was, you know, Brian's work was always, he was sort of like perched on my shoulder. And now that we're friends, he's, he's literally perched on my shoulder a lot of the time. Um, you know, that affected my work. But I never, ever thought of this as a family movie or, or a kid's movie at all. I thought of it, I thought of it like the 400 Blows. I thought it was, I, took, I, I treated it as the same way I treat the aviator or gladiator. It was, just, it was just a great story in a particular context. And the context that Brian created was, was for the whole family. Yeah. I, um, one thing that was, that was really striking, and I'm not going to really give anything away about the film, but when you see the film, you realize how personal it is to Martin Scorsese because m- movies were so important to him as a boy. And, of course, he's a filmmaker now, so he's sort of, you know, in a way he's partly, Melies is partly him and the boy is him. So... I don't know, I just wonder how that struck you, because it really, when you watch this film, you think this is a movie that Marty Scorsese was born to make, in a way. Yeah, I, you know, if we could go back in time and tell myself what was going to happen while I was making the book, it, you know, obviously it would not make any sense to me. Um, and, I, and, and I made this for myself. It, you know, it actually came out of, at a point in my career where I, I felt very low, and I was very frustrated, and some bad things had happened, and I just was frustrated and this came out of the fact that I didn't have anything else to do and someone said to me make the book you want to make and this is what came out of that statement and so you know cut to today and and I've seen the movie uh, a few times now last night was the big red carpet premiere and I saw the theater you know saw it on the screen of the Ziegfeld surrounded by 1600 people and it feels like I wrote... I mean, I'm aware that it feels like I wrote this book for Martin Scorsese. Like, I, I feel like I made it <laughs> for him. But I never could have tried to do that. It just is what happened. One of the reviews said that it felt like Martin Scorsese's imaginary autobiography. And I thought that was beautiful. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, completely. I mean, one of the things when, when, when Marty and I were talking about the book, you know one of the elements from Brian's novel that we seized on very strongly was the idea that movies are magic. Once upon a time, movies were magic. And what binds thematically or dramaturgically, one of the things that binds Hugo to George Melies 
is they believe this technology is magic. And whether you're performing a card trick, making a movie, even, even watching a movie, there has to be something enchanted about it. So we knew we couldn't be cynical about movie making. We knew we had to look at it as if, as if it was always, I, mean, I remember him using the image, it's always Dorothy opening a door, stepping into Technicolor. Every second of this movie has to have that feeling of magic. Uh, yeah, it, well, it certainly does. Uh, two, just two last questions, um, and then, uh, then we'll take a few questions from the audience, and then we'll finally get to see you go. But um, I, I just want to hear a little bit, from, maybe from both of you, about what it's like on a movie set. Sort of what surprised you about the... Because there's no more like, amazingly collaborative process. And, you know, and again, you, you do your books basically alone, but films are made with hundreds of people. So like, what, you know, what was the main sort of thing that surprised you about being on a movie set? Well, I think stepping onto a Martin Scorsese movie set is perhaps not the average experience <laughs> of walking onto a movie set. Although it was my first one. So everyone was like, oh, it's all going to be disappointing after this. You know, it's, it's the most unbelievable thing. I, I said it's like hanging out with God because they can make it like any time of day, any weather, any time period. They can go anywhere in the world. It, it all is made and, and it happens. I was there on the set the night they filmed the scene where George Melies burns his sets and costumes and the moon wasn't, and it's actually filmed outside, and the moon wasn't quite bright enough in real life. So they took out this giant scaffolding, got this big piece of blue fabric, a crane came, lifted up this thing, and suddenly this giant hanging box of fabric lit up from behind, and and it cast this perfect blue moonlight over the entire scene. And it was purely (laughs) magical. And walking through these sets that Dante Ferretti built, full size, you know, the full size train station, the full size uh, Melies apartment, which you'll see, it's it's all, like I was saying about the kitchen, it's all there. And it's, it's an unbelievable and beautiful and thrilling experience, especially because it was based on my little drawing. So I had the ability to look around and be like, Dante, that looks like the metal grate that I drew in the book. And Dante said, that is the metal grate you drew in your book. <laughs> I make it exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, one thing Brian said is completely true. Is 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 there some a Martin Scorsese set is very different, and every 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 film set has its own energy. You know, a Tim Burton set feels a certain way. Uh, you know, a, a Ridley Scott set feels a certain way. But there's something about a Marty set. It's it's like you're working with old old world masters, and everyone around him is absolutely the best in their field. So it's it's as if you're you're at the studio, and there's Rembrandt, and there's Caravaggio, and there's Titian, and there's Goya, and he just brings the best people working and there's and the sort of a, a very hushed efficiency about it a gentle hush that's very unique to his set I think. yeah uh this is a 3d movie i think it's it's um a, a real breakthrough in the use of 3d i'm just wondering how that uh you know and in, fed into the process or how how what you thought about that i don't know if it affected how you how it, you wrote the film no it certainly did once yeah. we made the decision to um to move to 3d it gave me opportunity encouraged me to to find ways to move through space so so i became a lot more active in the descriptions of, and you would you would have noticed this because after you started reading all the drafts it's i became more active about things like moving through the hallways going through the automaton you know moving through places and it's also when uh, there are three dogs who are Brian's favorite characters in the... Uh, no in dogs the, in my book, you may yeah. remember. <laughs> there are three dogs you're going to love in the movie, and they became... Uh, 
two dachshunds and a Doberman, which are long 3D dogs. Uh. <laughs> and, and also, what the way Bob Richardson, the, the, the uh, cinematographer, was thinking about 3D and light and, and atmosphere, they had these ideas. Like, I went onto the set and I saw on the 3D monitor as it was being filmed that, you know how sometimes when sunlight's coming in a window, it catches dust and it looks all sparkly? I noticed that they happened to catch some of the dust in the air. And I said to someone, oh, my God, look what luck that it happened to catch the dust. And they're like, are you kidding? It was Bob Richardson's idea. We went around the world to find the best goose down feathers, graded them up. And before every shot, there's someone over there blowing them into the scene. And then there's constantly smoke and steam and all sorts of atmospherics that are coming out in different levels so that you're always aware of what the 3D is doing and that you're in space. And what the dust did, which I especially loved, was it helps bring you into the world of the train station in a very, very subtle and beautiful way. Yeah. Okay. And um, so let's let's take a few questions and then we'll start the film. But uh, raise your hand and I can repeat a question if anybody has one over there. Oh, yeah, what was your art training, and, and why, how come you work on three-by-five cards instead of something bigger? Yeah, I did the drawing small because, um, at the, not to give too much away, but at the end of the book, if you haven't read it, it has something to do with uh, an automaton, and I had seen a real automaton draw about this size. So I wanted to do my drawings as if I was the automaton. And plus, it takes less time because there's less paper to cover. And I, t- I tend to work pretty tightly. And when you work small and blow it up, it loosens everything up and allows the light to come through in a way. And I went to the Rhode Island School of Design, um, but I did not want to illustrate children's books when I was in school because that's what everyone used to tell me I should do. So it made me really fight against it until I graduated from college and realized that that's what I should be doing. <laughs> <laughs> I failed at not being a children's book illustrator. <laughs> okay. okay. I think they I, want to see the movie. I think so. So uh, <laughs> let's see the movie. What we're, uh, before we stop, I just want to say it's going to take us just a, a few minutes to set up because we're going from uh, basically a PowerPoint presentation <laughs> to digital 3D. So there's be a minute or two of um, stuff happening on the screen. So ignore that, and then you'll you'll um, enjoy the magic of movies. And I do want to say that this one great thing about this movie is that it, it inspires people to be interested in film history, film archiving, film preservation. So you know you'll have like uh, all of a sudden people will be running out to apply to film archiving programs. <laughs> but it really does inspire people to get interested in film history. So for us at the museum, that's an exciting thing. Great. So. Um, okay, but congratulations to both of you as you're about to see. Um, so enjoy the movie. All right, thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.